Um, what we are is we are a, a non-profit, uh, independent uh, educational institute uh, that provides uh, um, programming in the humanities and the arts in the English language in and around Paris. We're registered as a non-profit association, so we're an association and we're also registered as a provider of continuing professional education. So one thing that people can do is if they take courses with us, they can get those reimbursed from their, from their workplaces or from their universities, places like that. Thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor to be able to present some of my work uh, to such a large um, and uh, enthusiastic crowd. Uh, definitely wasn't expecting a turnout like this, so um, this is really exciting. And um, I'm sharing with you um, new research um, that has, uh, well, it's um, the culmination of a dissertation. So six years of research in archives around Europe. Um, this project is what brought me to Paris in the first place in 2015, uh, and I've been here since then. Um, so uh, as we're going through this, and normally as an art historian, I'm used to having the little projector slide with me, but it's okay, we can coordinate, yeah, I guess, just... with, yeah, um, when it's ready to switch, uh, when we're ready to switch slides. So self-portraiture has been an important genre for female artists since the Renaissance. And a couple of uh, well-known uh, Renaissance painters like Sofonisba Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana uh, were early practitioners. It was, this was a way for them to exhibit their virtuosity, their uh, technical abilities, and their professional status as artists. Usually they're showing themselves with a palette in hand. Um, and while portraiture and self-portraiture were accessible for women, other modes, like life study, were not. And um, for a woman to paint the nude, tout corps, was to claim professional mastery. This was just not something that we see very often, uh, and it's really not until uh, 1897, in France in particular, where women are allowed to study uh, the live nude model at the École des Beaux-Arts, which we still have today. So to, pick, to depict oneself nude is really to venture into territory that few artists had dared to explore, men or women. So it was nothing shy of audacious, um, and we don't really see artists exploring the genre until the mid to late 20th century. But there I found three important artists who were painting in France during the early 20th century, and they tackled the nude self-portrait without inhibition. So today um, we're going to be looking at the works uh, by Suzanne Valadon, Emily Charmy, and Marie Vasilyev. Some of you might be familiar with Valadon, but the latter two might not be on everyone's radar. So uh, all of them turned to their own bodies with an unflinching eye, and they would not have seen other examples of this before tackling this subgenre. So it's interesting to see the results are very different. Um, so Suzanne Valadon painted her first nude self-portrait in 1909. Charmy uh, starts exploring this in the 19-teens. And then the uh, 19-teens and 20s, Vasilyev begins exploring uh, self-portraiture in painting and represented herself as a nude doll, a poupée portrait. 
So through their nude self-portraits, uh, they affirm their mastery on a level assumed in careers of men, and they reclaimed the body for centuries the property of male artists. They asserted agency as well as a liberated and sexually conscious self. These works, long overlooked, are some of the earliest examples of modern body imagery of the 20th century. So let's start with uh, Valadon, and uh, maybe we could go to the first slide. So this shows you, if you go back, so this is a self-portrait by Suzanne Valadon. Uh, this is one of my favorite works of hers. This is in uh, Houston. Um, and then we have a self-portrait by Marie Vasilyev, and then this is a, a self-portrait by uh, Emily Charmy. And so if we could go to, all painted around the same time. If we could go to the next uh, slide, please, thank you. Okay, so this is a work um, by an artist who is not featured in my dissertation, but she's very important uh, for my work. Uh, she was a German artist who um, moved to Paris at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, she was a real pioneer. Um, she paints what we believe to be the first known nude self-portrait by a woman in 1906. Um, it's called Self-Portrait, Age 13, Sixth Wedding Day, um, uh, 1906. Um, and so, uh, really, there's been a lot of uh, burgeoning uh, research on uh, this painter, um, and uh, she's, she's a very important artist, but uh, Valadon and Motorson Becker would not have known uh, one another. If we could go to the next slide, we'll see uh, Valadon's first known self-portrait, uh, just painted a few years after Motorson Becker's, and you can see it's quite distinct. Um, so while Motorson Becker is exploring the subject of pregnancy and paint, Valadon here is uh, doing uh, something entirely different. Um, she doesn't portray herself alone, but includes her partner, André Uther, who was also an artist. And this work is unprecedented. It's claimed to be the first work by a woman artist that depicts the male and female nude together. It's in the Pompidou, but they never exhibit it. Um, <laughs> So neither figure here you can see is idealized, and uh, Valadon subverts gendered codes by displaying the male and female body with the same steadfast realism. And take a look at this and imagine if there were no fig leaves. A preparatory sketch along with a photograph from 1909 revealed that in the original version, Uther's genitalia are exposed in full frontal nudity. Valadon later added the fig leaves in order to exhibit this uh, in the Salon des Indépendants in 1920. Um, but it's funny, I think, that only she added uh, the fig leaves only to uh, Uther, not herself. So at the age, she's 44 in this image, she exposes her naked body, pubic hair and all, in a pioneering display of female self-awareness and sexual consciousness. So I don't think that the magnitude of a transgression like this can be uh, underestimated. Um, but Valadon, I want to focus on her later self-images. She repeatedly returns to uh, the nude self-portrait, and without shame or embarrassment, she captures her body realistically at various stages throughout her life. 
Um, so at the ages of 52, 59, and 66, she captured her mature figure in three successive images. There may be more that are missing. That's my guess. Um, and she became the first known woman artist to, do to document the aging process in nude self-portraiture. She valiantly portrayed her aged and naked body without any tinge of eroticism and without a trace of disgust. Through her pioneering self-portraits, Valadon reclaimed her own, own image while simultaneously challenging societal attitudes and taboos about femininity, sexuality, and aging. So I argue that these uh, works are a radical reshaping of both the nude genre and female self-representation. So if we could have the next slide here. Oh, that's just to show together how different that is. Okay, so here we have two um, side by side. Um, so when um, uh, she here is showing herself um, as a mature woman, um, she's challenging established mores of femininity, sexuality, and age. Usually it's youth and the nude that went hand in hand. But Valadon here shows her mature figure, um, and that's coupled with a stern expression. Um, and although she exposes her breasts, uh, she is not displaying herself as an object of male desire. She is removing any of, er uh, of the erotic charge through this unapologetic directness. Uh, she is nude, but certainly not seductive. And um, although some scholars have read these images as mac masculinized and evidence of self-punishment, I argue that uh, she doesn't deny her sex in this image. Clearly, she represents herself as a woman in this portrait and will uh, willingly purges her portrait of any conventional signs of femininity. Uh, so if we go to the next one, hopefully it's fine. Oh, okay. So um, actually one more because we'll see two. Okay, great. So this is uh, Suzanne Valadon, a self-portrait uh, with bare breasts from 1931. And um, here she just paints herself from the torso up, capturing all the gradual deformations that occur with age. She shows the wrinkles around her neck, the growing shadows around her eyes, her emaciated, shrunken face, and deflated breasts. And I might, uh, should also point out to you that Suzanne Valadon, for those of you uh, who don't know, uh, she starts her career actually as an artist's model. And so she was from the lower classes, she's born in Limoges, moves as a very young uh, girl to uh, Paris with her mother. She's born out of wedlock uh, and finds her way uh, in, uh, well, she's in Montmartre at the epicenter mm -hmm. of uh, this uh, flourishing model modern art world, and uh, she becomes the model for different artists like Pouvi de Chavon, Toulouse-Lautrec, Renoir, and she was a beautiful woman, like absolutely stunning, um, and a very bold, audacious woman who makes really daring uh, choices. So she um, shifted from an artist model to an artist in her own right. So when we're looking at these old, uh, these images at the end of her life, we are really, she's, she's being quite honest with herself here, I think. Um, so she wears only one accessory, a necklace. And uh, in this unflinching portrayal of old age, she renders her weathered figure with, with no sign of self-pity. She proudly signed and dated the work up above, uh, making her age apparent. She was 66. 
Um, so uh, she had posed earlier in 1917 um, in the same uh, kind of image. And it's likely that she conceived of those two images to demonstrate the transfiguration of the body over time. So she's clearly documenting the aging process and seems to be embracing age at the same time. Um, and also showing herself as an active painter. Um, here you can see a glimpse in the background uh, just behind her of uh, something that she's uh, painting in her studio. So, um, Right, even though she is uh, older here, older than she was in Adam and Eve, she's still a woman who's in touch with her sexuality, uh, just as she was before. Um, so the image, okay, well actually before I get to that image, um, what I explore in my dissertation is um, I talk about the parallels between Valadon's work here and the writings of Simone de Beauvoir. So many of you are familiar with The Second Sex in 1949, uh, but she also wrote a very important book in 1970 called The Coming of Age, or La Vieillesse. And uh, she was writing this at a time when aging was still a prescribed topic in France. Um, and uh, like she had argued in, um, uh, similar to her argument in The Second Sex, she argues in La Vieillesse that age is not just biological, it is also something that's cultural. And uh, she says that womanhood, age, and the experience of it is shaped by culture. So um, she examines age from different angles and draws parallels between the situation of the aged to that of women and insists that both are marginalized positions of otherness. Um, and she reveals the ways in which ageism, like sexism, uh, uh, the way in which this is entrenched in Western culture. Um, so if in the second sex, she argued that women are divested of subjecthood by patriarchy. Following that same line of argument, in the coming of age, she asserts that uh, the aged are deprived of their subject status in Western societies. So uh, Valadon is confronting the subject of age in her self-portraits. Uh, and shows us a different encounter with uh, otherness. Um, she explores the marginalized position of old age in a manner with, which resonates with uh, Simone de Beauvoir's writings. So Beauvoir, already, she's writing the La Vieillesse in 1970 at a time when aging had not entered uh, the public consciousness in France as a topic of uh, uh, discussion, really. And so then to look at an image in 1931, we can really understand how progressive this is, because not only is she frankly confronting uh, the issue of age, she does this in a positive way. So she's displaying herself honestly in a self-affirming manner without antipathy, and she refutes the negative attitudes and associations uh, toward old age. Uh, she represents herself as a figure who is capable of transcendence as both subject and creator. She portrays old age as an empowered state. So the reason why I have these two images together is because I think there are some parallels here. Valadon painted her image in 1931 and uh, it bears some uh, resemblance with Alice Neal's self-portrait, an American artist. She painted this portrait in 1980, uh, nearly half a century later. 
And uh, this is Neil's first and only nude self-portrait, and you can sh see how she depicted her entire wrinkled figure replete with sagging flesh on a monumental size canvas. This is really large in the National Portrait Gallery, I believe. Um, begun when she was 75 and completed when she was 80, Neil fearlessly portrayed herself naked, stripped of everything except for the accessories of her trade. You can see she's holding a paintbrush cloth and a pair of spectacles. Fully exposed, her pink flesh stands out against the striped blue and white armchair. Generations apart, it is uncertain whether Neil was aware of Valadon. That we don't know. Nonetheless, their approach to the body and self-portraiture is analogous. As mature artists, Valadon and Neil expose their aging bodies on canvas, an act that was truly rebellious. So in their self-portraits, Neil and Valadon radicalize the genre of the female nude, wresting it out of the patriarchal, patriarchal structures of objecthood and voyeuristic viewership. Neil's portrait, however, we have to remind ourselves, is informed by an awareness of second wave, uh, the second wave feminist ideology and is conversant with the themes and ideas characteristic of the feminist art movement. So Valadon's nude self-portraits obviously predate these developments of the, the 60s and 70s. Yet from a 21st century vantage point, the um, degree to which these images resonate with feminist theory is quite striking, I think. Uh, Valadon engaged with, the prob with problematics of gender, age, and sexuality in the depictions of her own body in ways that are affirmative and empowering. She transgressed the boundaries and subverted society's mores about femininity and age. So uh, I argue that for Valadon, nudity in, this works, uh, in these works was integral for capturing and asserting the self. Depicting herself naked but not eroticized, she reclaims the body and transcends the role of other. This position, Beauvoir has shown, is assigned to women by patriarchy, but it can one day be surpassed. And Beauvoir writes, the more women assert themselves as human beings, the more the marvelous quality of other dies in them. So these words resonate deeply, I think, with Valadon's self-portraits. Laying her figure bare on canvas with a brutally honest eye, Valadon asserts herself as an embodied human subject and defines self and sexuality on her own terms. You ready for the next artist? Okay, and that was our cover image. Um, it looks like, I don't know, the camera, it's been a while since I saw the portrait. Her face is very flushed, and I wonder if the colors are slightly um, off, but no, it's close, very close. Um, so this is a work, a self-portrait by Emily Charmy, who devoted her career almost entirely to the representation of the female body, exploring female sexuality in paint. When painting nudes, she often used her own body instead of a model, models creating daring self-portraits. For Charmy, I argue, painting itself was a form of self-pleasuring inseparable from her own desires. Differentiated from an expression of male virility and sexuality evident in nudes by her masculine peers, 
her paintings are in tune with an independent and particular female desire. Charmy crafted what I call an aesthetics of female jouissance. So the majority of Charmy's nudes are self-portraits, even though she didn't title them as such. Her grandson notes that she rarely hired models and estimates that about 95% of her nudes are self-portraits. They were mostly exhibited posthumously and they were not intended as commodified images of uh, female sexuality for the pleasure of male audiences. Rather, they were likely intimate paintings through which Charmy could explore without restraint her most private desires. So this is one of the only nudes which scholars unanimously concur is a self-portrait. It was likely never intended for public viewership as it remained in Charmy's studio until her death. She faces the viewer, her robe half opened, you can see her breasts are revealed, a hand simply rendered with three digits rests on the thigh while the other is hidden underneath a blur of fabric. Positioned somewhere between the stomach and the groin, this, figures, this figure uh, appears to be touching and perhaps stimulating herself. However, Charmy obscures our view. She does not grant the viewer full access to the act taking place. She merely implies what could be happening. As the self-portrait demonstrates, there is a constant veiling and unveiling in Charmy's nude self-portraits. And something that I won't uh, elaborate on today but as I elaborate more on it, this in my dissertation and my book project, is the connections between the writer Colette and uh, Charmy. And I find a lot of parallels between their work, especially this kind of veiling and unveiling and also self-portraiture where Colette was often uh, writing, um, creating characters based a little bit off of her, her own identity. Okay, so if we could do the next one, thank you. So um, this one is called Nude on Red Sofa, and it's likely another self-portrait. Here, Charmy captures a woman in the throes of pleasure. The nude thrusts her head back over the plush arm of the sofa as she arches her chest upward. Red dominates the composition. Myriad shades of it appear, a velvet chaise longue in crimson before a background in rosewood, highlights of peach blossom, um, carnation uh, and scarlet colored lips. It's composed of swirling strokes of variegated, uh, variegated pinks. Her face is slathered in paint and appears flushed. A dash of magenta highlights her flared nostril. In some sections, the body appears to dissolve into the plush fabric underneath it, particularly the left shoulder and thigh, un uncontained by any contours. A dab of pink trails below the right nipple as if Charmy's brush had mistakenly slipped. The body appears volumetric due to a strategically textured arrangement of impasto layers. The lightest hues and most generous swatches of paint are applied to the woman's body with impasto touches on the woman's cheeks, chest, and left forearm. Her ample bosom is the most thickly painted area, delineated with a long, smooth stroke. The right arm extends back, while the left arm reaches downward past the torso to hover. Quivering, brushstrokes coalesce and blur. Evidently, this hand is not still. Flesh, muscle, epidermis, skin. Charmy's nudes are, seem almost palpable. 
close examination reveals a worked surface where paint has been massaged and stroked, applied in a rich creamy texture in some areas, thin layers in others, while in certain spots it dribbles. Meanwhile, flickers of color engage the eye. Charmy consistently intertwines vision and touch, and this is especially evident in uh, these self-portraits. These works are marked by what I call an aesthetics of female jouissance, a sensual play with matter and pigment that is distinctly her own. She continuously draws attention to matter. The thickly layered paint and textured surfaces become as important as the subject it depicts. Through this sensual application of paint, Charmy expresses her pleasure. If we could go to the next one. Uh, in this one here, nude holding her breast, the acts of touching by the figure and the artist are simultaneously evoked. One can imagine the painter's movement of the brush as she applies the paint in long undulating strokes, impetu impetuously allowing particles to collect on the surface, even a fingerprint, and heedlessly permitting the stiff hairs of the brush to leave their mark across the surface of the canvas. This serves to represent Charmy's own touch within the work or uh, the authorial presence of the artist. As Charles Blanc wrote, touch is the expressive handwriting of the painter. Cezanne's distinctive touche, you probably are familiar with the artist Cezanne, has been noted as just one device which signals his presence. Likewise, in Charmy's work, there are myriad idiosyncrasies which call attention to the hand of the artist, while the unexpected application of color and sensual brushstrokes compel the viewer to approach the work. On closer examination, they become formidably aware that these are Charmy's own manipulations of matière. So, um, tactility obviously is something that we have inherent in the medium of oil paint itself. Uh, and also, touch through paint has long uh, been associated, uh, there's a tradition, uh, this is a tradition as a practice of male self-expression and sexuality. In representations of the female nude from the Renaissance onward, uh, male artists have often laid emphasis on touch as they strive to evoke the sensation of flesh on the surface of canvas through delicate glazes, subtle shadow, and luminous hues. Rubens might come to mind. He painted corpulent and dimpled bacchants. Boucher, with his carnal female forms whipped into confection by his brush. Or Renoir, who portrayed voluptuous dreamlike dream -like bathers with skin in radiant hues, are often designated as accomplished masters of the tactile female form. The profound evocation of touch in Charmy's nudes would seem to align her work with this long tradition. However, her tactile facture offers a markedly different effect that, from that of her male artistic forebears and counterparts. Although at the time this would not have been a conscious strategy, the churned up quality of her nudes underscore female pleasure and lend a feminist reading. So this is where Luce Ugaré comes in. Um, she highlighted the, highlighted the role 
of the sense of touch uh, that it plays in women's jouissance. And in uh, this, this sex, which is not one, uh, she critiques the phallocentric privileging of male pleasure marked by an emphasis on sight. And she, Irigari, argues that the predominance of the visual and of the discrimination and individualization of form is particularly foreign to female eroticism. Instead, she argues that women take pleasure more from touching than from looking, and her entry into a dominant scopic economy signifies again her uh, consignment to passivity. She is to be the beautiful object of contemplation. According to Irigare, touch is primordial to women's jouissance. In fact, the tactile quality of women's desire is implicit in the very nature of women's sexual anatomy. And Irigare discusses the way uh, she talks about the two lips and women's anatomy. And she surmises, um, women, woman is already two, but not divisible into one. Um, and so she talks about women's sexual makeup and uh, how this relates to um, touch. And I think that this bears uh, resonance with Charmy's art, uh, which carries such a distinct tactile quality. The subject, the painter who painted it, and the viewer who views it are all strongly entwined within, in an interplay of tactility. Um, so one might easily view Charmy's nudes in concert with Irigari's words, uh, woman has sex organs more or less everywhere. She finds pleasure almost anywhere. So in uh, these works by Charmy, where she's showing uh, these uh, nudes, mostly self-portraits, in a range of postures and gestures and viewpoints, Charmy demonstrates the boundless ways in which women experience jouissance. So then we have to consider the fact that Charmy is occupying two roles in these nude self-portraits. She's both artist and model together. And these become indistinguishable and interwoven in her work. Um, and this is further enhanced by the tight field of vision that she uses, the range of vantage points, the large scale of the figures. Um, and so this, I find uh, some parallels with the work by a later artist, uh, uh, Joan Semmel. So if you could show the next. Um, this is uh, Joan Semmel on the grass from 1978, and this is a uh, self-portrait. Um, and like Neil, uh, Joan Semmel would have been well aware of, um, you know, uh, the feminist uh, art movement. She was really uh, a key part of that. And she did these uh, remarkable um, nude self-portraits. And here you can see um, it's a glance of the a very unusual positioning of the body. She's clearly looking down at herself rather than using a mirror. Um, and the body is truncated. Um, and uh, we also have this insinuation of self-pleasuring, uh, even though it isn't uh, evident uh, and clearly evident. 
And uh, I really think that there are some parallels here. Like Semmel's painting, the emphasis on proximity in Charmy's work lends the sense of the body observed not from the inquisitive eye of a voyeur, but from the eye of someone who knew the female body intimately, so personally, in fact, that it might be the artist's own. Um, so I talk about how, uh, if we could go to the next, Oh, that's the other R, so we maybe go back to. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, we can go back one. Back. Up. Okay, perfect. So um, I talk about how uh, in these nude self-portraits, we have a collapsing of a standard uh, dichotomy of subject and object, right? The um, male artist who paints the uh, female nude as object. But when Charmy's doing this, she serves both roles, artist, model, she becomes subject and object. Um, and we really can't identify in her work whether she was painting a model or her own image. So, um, so uh, due to the fact that we cannot distinguish whether we're looking at the artist uh, or another body, um, we have subject and object intertwined. And I talk about the relationship between Irigaray's analogy of the two lips and uh, when, um, uh, how the two lips uh, join and mingle without reference to the visible and become intertwined so that the position of subject and object um, is indeterminate. And so I, I talk about that more um, in relation to these nude self-portraits. So, um, what I, what I argue is that uh, in her work, uh, Charmy counters the long-established hierarchy between artist and model, subject and object, and presents something in between. Um, and, and I talk about that in relation to the, the Irigaré's two lips. Um, and so she's uh, you know, eroding these positions and uh, the hierarchy between artist and model, active and passive, subject and object, these dichotomies don't exist, uh, aren't present in her work. Um, the other thing that isn't present is um, the, the use of the mirror seems to be um, not present as well. Um, although she may have employed the mirror, it's not certain and she seems to kind of refute that uh, pra practice. So uh, she offers an alternative to the two-dimensionality of the flat mirror since self and other coexist simultaneously. So by emphasizing um, tactility, alighting subject and object positions, Charmy expresses female jouissance in all ex its complexity without an object of desire. Charmy's oeuvre is as elusive as it is alluring. The exact nature of her desire remains masked under layers of luscious paint. Okay, so hopefully I can introduce you to Marie Vasilyev if we still have time. Yes, we do. Okay, cool. Okay, so this is a really interesting artist who's not on most people's radar. Uh, she uh, was Russian and she moved to Paris at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, she had a grant uh, to study art here uh, from the Tsarina and she ends up studying in Matisse's workshop. He did have um, students uh, studying with him <laughs> early on 
And so she got to know Matisse and even lived uh, in, uh, rented a room uh, from Matisse, so really got to know him well. Uh, and she became a Cubist artist, um, and uh, I focus uh, a lot on her Cubist nudes that she painted, both male and female nudes. Um, these works are really not known at all, and, and mostly they're in private collections, so it's really hard to even uh, see them. Um, at what, uh, well, she was really active in the art community in Paris, in the avant-garde community. She was living in Montparnasse, and she launched her own um, atelier. So she had artists uh, studying with her. She had Leger come and give conferences. She was friends with Picasso. Uh, so she was really part of this uh, uh, milieu, uh, avant-garde milieu in um, the Montparnasse area. And uh, during, the, during World War I, she had a canteen where she fed starving artists. Um, and uh, there are some really interesting stories that uh, she illustrates from uh, that period. Um, so she was in touch with all these, uh, all of the, she knew everyone pretty much in, that, in the art world, the scene at this time. Um, and today, uh, if you talk to early 20th, and early 20th century scholars, they might tell you, oh, Mary Vasilyev, she does the poupée, the portrait dolls. Uh, and that's what she really uh, establishes, she establishes her reputation um, with these portrait dolls. Uh, Leger was a big admirer of them. Um, and uh, she did uh, even a portrait doll of um, Josephine Baker. So she was starting to make these portraits of different artists. Um, but she's also going to make a self-portrait, uh, a poupée autoportrait, um, which is uh, a work um, that we only know from um, this uh, photograph. And then we have uh, the mask. Uh, that that remains today. So she is an interesting artist because she was really um, in that circle and yet has been completely forgotten about. And part of that reason is due to xenophobia. It's due to the fact that she was uh, sent to a, a, some sort of internment camp during World War I, accused as being a Bolshevik spy. Uh, so, and, and part of her, um, her studio was ransacked at the time. So I think that a lot of her works actually haven't even survived, at least the ones uh, produced before the war. Um, so uh, here I'll focus on her uh, self-portrait doll. And um, she um, was this, this, in these works, uh, she's merging art and craft, employing a diverse range of unconventional materials. The exact makeup of each doll is uncertain. Um, the majority of them no longer exist, sadly, and were never cataloged. Uh, so we know a lot of, about the dolls through um, through photographs, although I was delighted when I went to the Black Models exhibition, um, Model Noir, at the Orsay um, just uh, recently and saw the portrait doll of Josephine Baker that she made. Um, so they are in private collections, they just need to reveal themselves at some point. Um, so she mentioned in interviews that she employed materials found in the trash. Uh, she's a starving artist, so she's using anything she can get her hands on. She made dolls out of vegetables when funds were extremely low. Um, customarily, the dolls' bodies were made with leather and filled with sawdust. 
um, and certain features would be painted on pieces of silk of chiffon and then applied to the doll. Each part of the doll was made separately and then sewn together, making the body semi-mobile. Um, so Vasilyev starts doing these dolls uh, during her last trip to Russia in 1915 to 1916. Um, and she exhibited these early works um, in a very important exhibition organized by Vladimir Tatlin in Moscow in 1916, uh, the exhibition uh, Magasin. And um, then upon returning to Paris, she expanded this into a steady production of poupée portrait of her friends, artists, and notable avant-garde personalities. She depicted Apollinaire, uh, Blaise Sandrars, uh, Matisse, Picasso, Paul Poiré, uh, Poincaré, <laughs> Uh, Hannah Arloff, uh, Trotsky, politicians, um, and uh, lots of prominent figures. Um, she writes a memoir, which we still have today. Uh, it was never published, but we have the typewritten copy of it in a private collection in Paris. And, um, and uh, she, she wrote about those uh, dolls in there. Um, the dolls drew attention of uh, Leger, who uh, wrote in a letter his desire to promote her work. Um, so she really established herself in Paris uh, as a creator of doll portraits. Um, Man Ray also uh, captured her in a photograph uh, holding one of her poupée portraits. Um, now what I find really interesting about her uh, portrait dolls, especially her self-portrait here, is her androgynous appearance as well as um, her engagement with African art. Um, so there was an influx of literature on this topic during the interwar period about African art, and she may have owned a copy of Carl Einstein's Negerplastik, and I'm probably saying that wrong, uh, Negerplastik, published in German in 1915 um, and in French in 1922. And then you have uh, Paul Guillaume, uh, the uh, famous collector who wrote about um, uh, African sculpture as well. Uh, so she was well familiar with African art, at least what was uh, being published at the time. And artists uh, at this time were going to the Marche aux Pousses in search of objets sauvages and amassing large numbers of ethnographic objects with they, which they would keep in their studios. Uh, Picasso is doing this, Matisse as well. Um, and so uh, what's interesting with Vasilyev is um, there's something uh, exotic about this kind of art that appeals to her, African art. Um, and she uh, seems in a way to identify with it. Um, what interested Vasilyev isn't the close ethnographic study in the actual tribal cultures themselves, um, but this essence of difference instilled in these objects and how this could serve as a metaphor for the otherness which she herself embodied. So here you can see um, she's transformed her face into an African-inspired mask, and her body is kind of like this gender-neutral doll. She reduces her facial features to simple forms. She has a long tubular nose um, and bulging eyes. Um, she uh, paints the eyebrows on with a thin uh, black line, um, which you can't see here, but it's in another uh, mask. Uh, she has this uh, blonde shaggy wig composed of real hair, and uh, the eyes are made of glass uh, beads. And then, uh, then we have the small uh, leather uh, 
pieces, uh, eyelids attached to it. Um, so it really looks quite, uh, the eyes look quite lifelike. Um, and uh, really lend this poupée portrait the appearance of an effigy. So um, I argue that Vasilyev constructed a self outside of European cultural norms, and uh, that uh, I talk about the similarities between uh, her poupée portrait and the uh, pende mask. And if you can go forward, I think, uh, keep going somewhere. Ah, there we go. Um, there's this, this mask uh, that she might have seen a depiction of in one of these publications circulating around about African art. And uh, actually Matisse owned a couple of these uh, pende masks in his collection. So um, the other thing that's interesting about um, uh, these, uh, her poupée autoportrait is that while in others, uh, other uh, dolls that she makes, she transmutes the African uh, masks that inspired her into simple geometric forms, um, breaking the link with the original ethnographic source. In her self-portrait, there remains this interesting resemblance with the source material. Um, and so I argue that she merges her own image with the masks, adding light eyes and tousled blonde hair, uh, associating herself with otherness. And uh, this process we can call um, self-othering. Uh, she resembles her, she uh, represents herself as other, um, creating a non-identity. And um, this actually goes along with Einstein, who'd written about uh, African art and African masks, uh, who had said the way uh, an African transforms himself in wearing a mask uh, annihilates his individuality. So while uh, artists conventionally unveil the self in their self-portraits, Vasilyev does the opposite. Her poupée autoportrait is not self-descriptive. Instead, it obscures any cohesive sense of self. She refashions herself as uh, something suspended between the familiar and the exotic, self and other, male and female. Um, and then I also notice with her uh, poupée autoportrait how she erases any signs of her gender. Um, and uh, in that uh, doll, you can see that she is naked except for a beaded necklace, and she wears a yeah the, she wears the fur loincloth, um, and she transmutes her form into an androgynous one, refusing the audience any sight of her actual female body. So she's nude, and yet uh, we don't actually get any uh, sight of her of her naked body um, in any realistic way. So she um, also is defying here the traditional association of the doll with the feminine and the female body, and employs the doll as an object to assert gender parity. Right, because dolls are always associated with girls, and that's what girls um, grow up playing with. So we can um, go down, maybe. Keep going, going. Okay, so uh, if we go back, so these are um, some images. Uh, we have other artists experimenting with uh, dolls and puppets at this time, um, especially uh, artists involved with the Dada movement. Um, so we have like Sophie Tauber Arp. Um, who did these amazing um, puppets, uh, Hannah Hawk, um, uh, Hennings, 
Um, and so, uh, and uh, uh, we have Hans Belmar who does these uh, really uh, interesting images of these dolls kind of literally taken apart. Um, and uh, so Vasilyev is, is certainly aware of uh, what's going on at the time. But uh, Vasilyev seems to be different in that she's the uh, only one um, of her female contemporaries who uh, shows, uh, you know, the nude self-portrait. And um, it seems like Vasilyev, uh, for her, the doll is a tool for uh, gender and identity disruption and reshaping the body and the self. Um, so what else can I tell you? The other pictures that we saw previously show um, how she explores and keeps reusing this image. It recurs again and again throughout her oeuvre. Um, so this is a uh, self-portrait that she paints. Um, you know, here we get her image with the self-portrait poupée uh, autoportrait. Um, and then this here, this is the cover illustration of her uh, memoir, which was never published but she really had uh, high goals to, to do that. But you can see she keeps um, reusing this same kind of mask, employing that repeatedly in her work. And then if you can go continue a few more, keep going. Oh, that's the Josephine Baker one that was in the, uh, the model, uh, black model exhibition at the Orsay. And then if you keep going, oh yeah. So this is Valadon. Uh, and Valadon, uh, who actually, uh, Valadon and Vasilyev were actually friends. Um, and here we have a work, um, uh, La Poupée Délacée. So it's a, a girl kind of in between uh, girlhood and adolescence. And uh, she has the doll uh, on the floor and she is uh, paying attention instead to uh, her uh, image in the mirror. Um, and uh, here you can see she's got this uh, large pink bow on her head, which matches the pink bow on the doll. So the, she's paying no attention to it, though. Um, and she's instead abandoning the doll, a symbol of her childhood. Um, and so, yeah, caught between youth and womanhood. So unlike uh, Valadon, Vasilyev dislodges the doll from uh, its traditional associations with femininity. And um, she, uh, let's see what else. She um, is constantly, you know, doing these rigid things. If you actually go back, uh, right, no, keep going. Yes, so when she shows herself this way, um, with the mask mirroring the uh, self-portrait doll. She um, shows herself in kind of more masculine attire. You can see she's wearing a, um, a tie and she's in this kind of rigid pose, straight and uh, very rigid um, with this kind of blank stare. And in this way, she resembles an inanimate androgynous doll. Um, so she has the kind of wooden stiffness of an inert puppet. Um, and you can see where she's laid her hand there, splayed uh, right on her lap. Um, and so it's a gesture that 
really uh, defiantly asserts a self-possessed sexuality. Um, so this contrived pose is um, really quite remarkable, and uh, it really is um, an image that lacks a fixed gender. So Vasilyev, it seems, really asserts and afflants uh, an androgyny in her uh, self-images. Um, and she actually described herself in her memoir, she described herself as having uh, an essence that was neither uh, masculine or feminine. Um, and uh, this, I think, resonates with, with uh, we see that in uh, her own self-portraits. And maybe this has more to do with her identity, uh, the sense of estrange estrangement that she must have felt as a Russian immigrant in France. She never obtains French citizenship, by the way, even though she tries incessantly throughout her life to do so. Um, so through her self-portraits, uh, Vasilyev transposed her sense of alienation into imagery, which probes and blurs gender identity. Um, so, uh, for Vasilyev, the doll offered limitless opportunities to escape the confines of a single monolithic identity of gender or race, and wresting the doll from its associations with girlhood and femininity, she exploited it as a device to disrupt gender conventions and to assert a self-image that was mutable, submersi subversive, and modern. stuff that otherwise we wouldn't have had a chance to either see or to read so 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 this, this kind of like raw material that you're working on is really really fascinating we're gonna open the floor to questions before we do so I just want to uh, remind you of two things this talk is actually like a prelude to Lauren's course Lauren is starting a course at PICT on the 9th of March and the topic is women, women artists and the nude. So she's just given a kind of like a little glimpse into that course here, but that's gonna be an 18 hour course where she goes in depth, not just with these artists, but also spanning a wider historical arc and, uh, and uh, uh, explaining and, and tracing the history of women artists' engagement, especially with nude uh, portraiture. So that's coming up on the 9th of March and it will last until April 6, and that is uh, an 18-hour course. Um, you can find that on the website, on the PICT website, which is parisinstitute.org, and uh, if you want to sign up for that course, you can do that there with one click. Also, one thing that I want to remind you of before we start the Q&A is that, I don't know where it is now, but there was a paper going around where people can sign up, uh, sign their email addresses if they want to be informed about upcoming picked events, upcoming picked courses, like uh, Lauren's upcoming course, you can sign your email address, you can put your email address on the list, and you'll get the information about that course and about everything else in a monthly e-newsletter. Anyway, so that's just a little bit uh, sort of uh, <coughs> to frame your talk, but now, um, uh, now let's take some questions. Can I add something there? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's the second time and the second event, the public lecture that we're doing this semester, and it's the second time that I'm seeing people, you know, like sitting on, sitting the, floor. on the floor. <laughs> so I promise next time you're going to have a better, bigger, and more comfortable space. So thank you for your patience. It's really touching. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks for thanks for your patience. Absolutely. So um, yeah, questions for Lauren. 
Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Um, it's about the Charmy self-portraits. Okay. And you mentioned that there's a sense that a mirror either wasn't used or it doesn't look like she's using a mirror. Mm -hmm. So if she's not using a mirror, I'm just curious, or if you think she is using a mirror, what makes, what gives the sense that it's not a simple reflection flatness from a mirror? Yeah, so I explore that a lot more. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to, mm. yeah. um, but I think um, it's something past a flat re mirrored reflection uh, that she is capturing. And um, because there is such an emphasis on touch, it's kind of this um, maybe a corporeal uh, capturing of the body that um, gives us a sense, uh, yeah, that, that that mirror isn't there. Um, but it's also the ambiguity of what she's actually capturing. If, is it her own body? Mm -hmm. Is it someone else? So, and, and um, it's, it, she also shows herself or the nudes in these postures where they are, you know, their eyes are closed, uh, like the one over the sofa. It, mm -hmm. it looks like uh, that, you know, rather than working from a mirror image, if she is painting herself, um, it seems to be so much... Uh, I don't know, but I've asked myself so many questions when looking at Charmy's work because there's there's so much um, about it that I want to know. I want to know about her working process and uh, if she, how often she used models. I mean, there's so many questions that are unanswered, uh, and also. Um, did she paint uh, quickly? It looks like these were just whipped up like spontaneously. It has that spontaneous appearance, but maybe she was more methodical and slow. And I get that yeah, too, so yeah. Yeah. I've tried to really get a lot of answers from the the grand uh, children who okay, I'm yeah. connected with, but um, I have to be very careful with uh, what with showing them my work. So um, sometimes, um, well, yeah, it just they would want her to be shown in a specific manner, and I don't know if my ideas conform with their ideas of what Charmy was and what her painting is all about. So that's another yeah thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, they all look, um, the bodies look very similar. Like she'll show a male figure with the same kind of tubular uh, limbs as her own self portrait, and she may have reused the same kind of template for the body. Uh, and then um, it, they're just subtle features that distinguish the person based off of their personality. Um, but she, it often looks like, you know, she was inspired by African masks, but then it's also the materials themselves, and I wish we could see more of these uh, in person because um, just the, 
the materials that she was using, vegetables and <laughs> like, um, you know, animal skin and different things. Um, yeah, so the, I should have shown some of those images there, but uh, yes, the images of male figures have the same kind of androgynous appearance as, as her own self-portrait. Yes. Yeah. There's a children's book about Mr. Sati, and really? it says that Eric said uh, that the, he threw her out of the window and she landed on her feet because she was an acrobat. Well, that's <laughs> that's great. I would like to know, uh, read that book. Um, she uh, was, yeah, for a while had this fling with uh, Sati, and she was a heartbreaker. Um, so. Um, the association with being an acrobat is because she and, and she was a storyteller so a lot of things about her life are uh, you know fabricated but um, but she uh, worked for a short time in the circus as an acrobat and but quickly early on injured herself so she gave up that career and became a model um, but they you know, validity of that and which circus she worked at, you know, people have tried to figure it all out. Uh, but we think that she, that she was uh, an acrobat for a short period of time. So when she and uh, Satie split, he writes this, uh, uh, composes a piece, uh, composes a, um, a piece that uh, goes, it's like really repetitive. He was so sad that it, uh, he, you're supposed to repeat this um, piece like 80 times or something ridiculous. Um, so she was always, yeah, breaking hearts, so, yeah. Uh, my question was, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about the reception uh, that these artists had? I mean, you were saying that a lot of the paintings were not exhibited at all. Uh, were people aware of this work? How did they react to it? Um, just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a really important thing that I considered uh, as I was doing the research and writing this. Um, and uh, Valadon was the most uh, daring in exhibiting her nudes. Uh, she exhibited her female nudes. She painted male nudes and exhibited them. Uh, received uh, like reactions uh, that, um, well, a lot of times it was so shocking that there was no response. Like you look through the reviews and, and um, of the salon that year and you don't see like any any mention uh, maybe someone says it's silence. yeah silence yeah and uh, one maybe w would mention uh, she could have shown better taste um, uh, and then there is one um, uh, one writer I'm blanking on his name right now but he was uh, involved with the surrealist movement but he he wrote that um, that she was an old slut in like a, a joking way but it was still insulting to to say that um, but her uh, the Adam and Eve painting um, I have to look again but I don't think there was much of a response to that it was painted in 1909 and shown in 1920 um, so there's a gap there but there's some paintings that she is exhibiting right away like her uh, male nudes, uh, Lancement de Fide uh, in uh, 1914, and that was the one that sparked the reaction that, yeah, the, the insults. 
Um, and then with... So she actually got, like, insulted for painting a male nude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And with Charmy, um, she actually probably, well, it's hard to compare, but she attains uh, quite a bit of success during the teens and tw especially the 20s. Uh, and the interwar period, she was well known in Paris and she was uh, exhibiting her work widely uh, in gallery shows and in uh, the Salon des Indépendants, things like that. Um, but it's, um, it seems like the most subversive paintings that I showed you, like this painting and the two others, were not shown to the public. And I explore how she paints in two different styles. There are nudes that she paints in this very stylized manner. It looks kind of very much like the 20s and these like lanky figures and uh, so worlds apart from uh, from this. And that's, um, you know, she gets, uh, some critics call her the um, Colette of painting. And uh, so she was well known for her nudes. And uh, she even um, received the Legion of Honor. Uh, but she, after World War II, is pretty much completely forgotten about. Um, so I think that there was a selective process. Uh, she was consciously deciding which works she wanted to show and which, which works she was keeping in her studio. So that's the big question. What did she do with these and what was the purpose for painting such uh, uh, transgressive nudes? Um, and then Vasilyev was um, exhibiting her work but the most interesting paintings that I found, like there's um, a cubist nude, male and female nude, and it is painted front and back with the female nude on the front and the male nude on the back, except the bodies are reversed. So you don't flip the painting like this, you've got to rotate it like this. And I only discovered that by actually going to meet the collector in Monaco and they wouldn't take the painting off the wall for me, but at least I got to see it. Um, whether or not she showed that painting is uncertain. Um, and I think she may have displayed it in her, uh, in her art school, um, but she was regularly exhibiting her poupée uh, portrait, which were a big hit. Um, yeah, but there is, I think, an awareness of uh, the need to censor works, uh, the need to not always show all of uh, what you're doing to the public uh, because this was really daring and you risked so much, uh, your career, your reputation. Um, so, but it's always really difficult um, to find out what was exhibited and what wasn't. It's hard, even with lists that they have from the salon and the gallery shows, we don't always know if it's just titled nude that doesn't tell us anything, you know. <clears throat> Other questions? Uh, if this is just a sampling of your work, how yeah. many female artists are? I wrote about just these three. Yeah, but uh, Motus, Paula Motorson Becker is another artist who is uh, worth a great deal of consideration. Um, but I didn't focus on, on her. Um, there's been more work done on her recently. And 
yeah, there was a retrospective a couple of years ago at, uh, the, yep, in Paris. So, yeah. And the three that you're working on, is there work found in public collections? Valadon, a lot of her works are in, uh, owned by the Pompidou. So there was a doctor who was close with her, and he inherited a lot of her work, which he then donated to the Pompidou. So they hold most of it. And then it's um, uh, to see her work on display, um, you can go to uh, the Musée des Beaux-Arts in Limoges, where uh, it's this, uh, maybe her most well-known work, uh, La Chambre Bleue. And it's uh, a woman who's like very, um, you know, I don't know, um, She's corpulent and she's uh, propped on this bed in the manner of an odalesque, but she's got books on the end and she's smoking a cigarette. And so it's this really um, quite a statement that she, that she was making. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to see their, their work uh, because it's mostly, um, well, with Charmy and with Vasilyev, it's mostly in private collections. Uh, and uh, there are collectors who are really, that are, have been extremely generous in uh, opening their homes to me and allowing me to, to study these works, which has been amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep which is a new modern, yeah. Yeah, so these are, yeah, the, the one in um, Montmartre, at Musée Montmartre, they remade that to look like her studio. And you also have her son, I didn't even mention her son. Um, usually the two get mentioned together, um, Utrio. Uh, so his bedroom is there uh, as well. And then in the 15th, you have the um, Villa Vasilyev, which is a contemporary art. Uh, they're doing um, a, lot of, uh, um, a lot of interesting exhibitions there. So it's a lively kind of group with lectures and things going on. Yeah. So while, while you were doing your research, um, did you get the feeling, I mean, what is your overall feeling regarding the is there a sort of increase in awareness of these kinds of artists? Is, is that something that's happening? Or, or, or do you just, uh, is it just, are you kind of like a sort of a solitary figure <laughs> who's trying to pull these people out of obscurity? Well, there, so um, Linda Nochlin wrote a very famous <coughs> essay in like 1970. Uh, and she, um, very famous feminist art historian who recently passed away. And uh, she, she made it clear, she basically wrote about why uh, women, uh, why we don't have great female artists and explained, you know, the, that there were restrictions and impediments that made it impossible for a female to become a great artist. Um, and she, uh, in that um, uh, essay, she doesn't necessarily encourage everyone to go out and try to find that great female artist that's hidden in someone's attic or hidden like in the museum's uh, uh, collection somewhere in the reserves. Um, she doesn't really encourage that. Um, but there has been, um, well, she was greatly involved in um, 
writing about women's work and drawing attention to them. But there are many, many, many other uh, scholars who are doing this. Um, I find that the um, early 20th century is still a period, oddly, because there's so much attention uh, to this period for art history. Uh, um, that there seems to be less attention uh, at uh, pointed towards uh, women artists, um, whereas the 19th century, you see uh, such a focus on uh, Barrett Morisot and Mary Cassatt. Uh, these are like household names now. Um, Camille Claudel. Uh, but yeah, there are there are scholars out there that are doing great work, and I'm very excited. I'm going to a conference uh, in Chicago next week, and I'm going to see what's what's going on, um, the, uh, the um, CAA uh, annual conference. Uh, they're going to have a focus on women um, since it's, I guess, 100 years since the women, women got the right to vote in the United States. But um, yeah, there's, there's plenty going on, um, I think, especially since the past few years, uh, there's attention to women. And how about sort of taking their space in museums? I mean, is that something that is also commensurate with the sort of scholarly attention? Are they are they getting more exposure in art museums? Yeah, they certainly are. Um, the Baltimore Art Museum is only collecting works by women artists in 2020. Uh, the Pompidou has been shifting its permanent collection around to highlight women artists. Natalia Goncharova is always now on display, um, and. Uh, that's, that's easier for a modern and contemporary art museum to do than the Louvre, for example, which has like, of its collect paintings collection, uh, only 1.5% of the artists are women. So, but that, you know, has to do with the situation for women, their ability to become artists at that time was more restricted. But yeah, there is definitely um, a great, uh, more, and Orsay also, Musée d'Orsay uh, has been highlighting women in the collection, and there was a wonderful exhibition on Barrett Morisot um, this, this year, or last year. So, yeah, we're starting to see it. It's slow, uh, but increasingly, you know, more attention to, to women artists in museums. Any further questions? Well, in that case, thank you very much, Lauren, for fascinating artists. Once again, before you leave, let me remind you that the course Women Artists and the Nude is coming up. It starts on the 9th of March, 18-hour course. And if you're interested in it, you can find out more about it on the website of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. Thank you very much for sharing this evening with us. Thank you. Thanks for coming.